This is Other Voices. We are listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Merton Simpson, who says he has always had a sense of his African ancestry and his blackness. He was born in Charleston, South Carolina, and raised in Brooklyn. So he says he's always known, too, the deep divisions in the United States. Simpson is an Albany County legislator representing Arbor Hill, Sheraton Hollow, Washington Park, and West Hill. If and when some of the initiatives on the human infrastructure are implemented, that will give people hope, he says. What happens historically is people don't stand up when they're beaten down. People stand up when they're given a little bit of hope. Welcome, and thank you for talking to us about this. My Um, pleasure. First of all, just tell us a little, if you would, about the Crown Act, which I'm ashamed to tell you I had not heard of before. It stands for Create a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. And the state passed this law two years ago. Just could you tell us a little about it and what the county hopes to do with that? Sure. Well, I mean, there really wouldn't be a reason for most people to know about the act per se, uh, but it's very important because um, there's really a real problem with, you know, it's, it's, it goes back into the introduction of, of Black people into the Americas where they're just different standards of beauty and different standards of acceptance. You know, there's a, there's been a whole movement to tr- in, in rationalization of the enslavement to try to prove that the people of color, Black people in particular, were less human and therefore less deserving of human rights than uh, white people. And of course, this was all based on the profit motive of, of slavery. And, you know, people who argue, well, it was just a question of people being cohorts of their time. But when you have passionate people like Frederick Douglass or even John Quincy Adams, who, you know, pointed out um, the barbarity of, of slavery, and there were many people who were intellectual who understood that Black people uh, were at least the equal of any other people, if not in many ways, you know, more blessed. Um, and, and so we have now the artifacts of that. And the real problem is America has never come to grips with his legacy of, of race. You know, you, you see the present configuration where, I mean, if you, if you want to deal with the multiple inversion of Orwell, you have people who attack the Capitol claim later that it was only a peaceful demonstration and then have the temerity to blame Black Lives Matter when the video footage is overwhelming. The actual uh, testimony of the participants themselves, and yet you have the horror and the shame of people in Congress who, I mean, Pence was inches away from being hung. And he comes out and says, well, the president and I may not agree on January 6th, but we shouldn't let that one day un- undo the good work that we've done. And now we just last Sunday, the Washington Post did a minute-by-minute minute documentation of what uh, Donald Trump was doing on January 6th. And the prelude that lead up to it and its aftermath, 
And so this all relates, the, the, the Crown Act is one part of a response to a longer concatenation of abuses that Black people suffer because of the mishistory and disinformation about what has happened in our legacy. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, one of our uh, employees asked me, was there actually a 1921 Tulsa, Oklahoma bombing? Now, here we have a situation where what was called a Black Wall Street was actually bombed by planes uh, because the white residents were uh, not accepting of Black people being prosperous. And yet, this history happened in a lifetime. There's still some 100-year-old survivors of the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, and yet very few people up until recently have known about it. The HBO movie Watchmen has is brought to the fore this you know, tragic event uh, with, with a great amount of insight. I recommend that everybody watch the HBO series Watchmen. It really, they really did an excellent job of packing in a lot of history and culture in a science fiction modality, but sometimes fiction can be more clarifying than historical analysis, and they did an excellent job. But when it comes to the Crown Act, you know, what we see is you know, another manifestation of the denial of the legacy of racism in America. And so it's a, a real problem for you know, many black people, black women in particular, uh, for, for being discriminated against because of their natural hairstyles. You know, like what the, the whole and 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 I guess it's, I'm a little frustrated that many of our legislators were confused about the very simple law of of the uh, New York State Human Rights Law. It explicitly says that it's discriminatory to deny people employment rights if they have dreadlocks. Now, there was this whole discussion about, well, if, you know, a junior ROTC or LaSalle or, or one of these quasi-military schools has a policy of short hair and they apply it to everybody, why is that not non-discriminatory? Well, because specifically, um, notwithstanding Bo Derrick and her cornrows, the majority of people who wear dreadlocks, cornrows, and, and other uh, hairstyles are black people. And so this is a, a hairstyle that kind of is natural to our culture and to our actual physi physiognomy. And, and so the standards of acceptability of what's neat and what's not neat, um, there, there was a, a specter about whether uh, employers would somehow be you know, uh, disadvantaged by having to adhere to the human rights law. And of course, it doesn't cost anybody to have an employee that has a particular hairstyle. The particular uh, value of what we're doing in the county is we're adding also head coverings, which is also you know, a longstanding feature of Black people in the Americas. And that's a cultural uh, transition from our history in Africa. We've always had people who've particularly women who wrap their hair in certain kinds of ways. And yet we actually have present situations here in Albany County where people have been denied employment rights of being treated in a uh, non-appropriate uh, way because of their hair preferences, which has nothing to do with their ability to do the job. Now, certainly we recognize that there are situations where long hair might be a hazard because of the particular kind of work you do. And that's one thing. But when it comes to a question of, well, you just think it's nice to have short hair. Well, no, that's a problem. Yes. I During the discussion, Rebecca Nellis Kennedy, the majority counsel, said if there were a health or safety issue, that would 
be different, but otherwise. And that's common sense. Yeah. yeah. And I did look up because the army uh, recently went through this whole procedure um, where the women there, the African-American women in the United States Army, um, were wearing their hair in locks as opposed to braids or twists, which were allowed on the white women. <laughs> and they made the case that this, you know, was the same sort of uh, hair that would fit under a helmet or that could um, fit under the, you know, required uniform cap. But it was just done differently because of the texture of the hair. So, exactly. yeah. So the army changed their regulations. And I just found it sort of uh interesting to listen to the discussion that went on during that committee meeting. Um, but it it sounds like it's going now to the general legislature to discuss and decide on. Is that what's happening next? Yeah, I don't anticipate there's going to be any problem, frankly. I, I think that m the majority of people in the legislature are not going to have any difficulty with it. I have to confess that I'm a little bit disappointed that some people confess or stated that they were confused about what the law meant. I mean, the law very clearly states see, the, the, the concept that people somehow are having difficulty with is, too, is that this is the county law is basically just a, a minor adjunct to the state human rights law. But the importance of continually mentioning the state human rights law is that the state human rights law supersedes anything we do in the county. Now, I know and, and I challenge, you know, uh, our council to give me a precedent where since this law has been passed, there's been a, a, a conflict where it's been decided from the judiciary that it was OK if a uniform short hair policy was given, that that would allow for people to discriminate. And there, there has been uh, no such case law. And so to me, a state as populous and as dynamic as New York State from 2019 till now, if nobody has actually challenged that, I think that there's a general acceptance that this is appropriate and, you know, as contentious as, as people are in New York state, that it hasn't come up now. I think it's been sufficient time to show that it's not an issue that uh, people have a, a large problem with. So um, one of the things that you mentioned in passing, and I just wish you could talk about it a little more because you seem so um, informed and committed is just a little more about this whole history of oppression and why now is it because of the murder of George Floyd that so many white people are suddenly focused on this and so many school programs are trying to incorporate, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion types of programs. What What's your take on why now there's this sudden explosion of interest in this? Well, just just as Donald Trump is not responsible for the origin of the COVID pandemic, uh, he's not responsible for the culture of, of racism in this country. But what he is responsible for is supersizing uh, the a malaise that already exists. So Donald Trump has, has virtually made it acceptable for the Klan to take their hoods off. And, and in that environment, again, if, if, let's think about this as a practical thing. Prior to Donald Trump, you have never had any Republican politician deny the results of a legitimate election. 
Nobody thinks in those terms. We've never had an actual assault on the Capitol, even during the Civil War. So just as Donald Trump is responsible for supersizing the pandemic, and what we can see is that the way that uh, Joe Biden has made vaccines available and the fact that people who use vaccine and safety protocols appropriately, uh, we can manage the COVID uh, pandemic. Donald Trump, who had medication that nobody else in the world has actually had access to, refused to wear a mask. It's my contention that had Donald Trump worn a mask, or even if he would start to wear a mask now, it would do a lot to bring us to to getting a handle on this pandemic. But for his self-serving, and I would say not sane political agenda, he refuses to uh, support the protocols that are appropriate to keep us safe. So just as the pandemic has been supersized by Donald Trump, the racism, you know, I think uh, Nancy Pelosi is probably uh, next to Tip O'Neill and maybe in contention, probably the greatest speaker we ever had. But somehow I think she's caught in, in a muscular memory of a Congress that no longer exists. So when she said early in the impeachment process that we didn't want to deal with impeachment because it would be divisive. I was born in Charleston, South Carolina. We've been divided since before the Civil War. And so what Donald Trump has done is taken those uh, latent uh, uh, racist traits and made them acceptable and actually made them perceived to be by his cult an appropriate patriotic response to the canard that the election was actually stolen. Now, the, the tragedy is that most of the politicians in Washington know this is a lie, but because they're so self-serving and cowardly that they're willing to promote this lie at the detriment of democracy and the imperiling the entire planet. So I would say that a large amount of, of the racism that we see accelerated um, has been a, a, a result of the kind of climate that Donald Trump has I- I- implemented. So you mentioned that you were born in Charleston, South Carolina. Could you kind Mm -hmm. of just walk us through your life? I know during the committee discussion, you said you spent 20 years at West Point. Is that right? No, 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 no. I was on. No, I was on the National Board of Blacks in Government. And as as long as maybe, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know, cadets at West Point were wearing their hair in locks and and dreads and the like. And, you know, even the New York City Police Department for many years has not had restrictions on hair policy for black people because they realize there's no relationship between your hairstyle and your ability to do a proper job. So, and in fact, no, no, go ahead. I was going to say, in fact, in many communities to see people who have sort of indigenous hairstyles endears them to the community. I mean, one of the things that we really need is community policing. And one of the things that would be important is to have people from the community actually be policed and serve the community because there's there's a, a knowledge, understanding and a commitment to that community. One of the problems we have is that you have, you know, you have uh, white police officers who don't live in the community who come in and often serve more as an occupying force. Now, by no means would I say that all police officers are, are bad. And I, I personally know a lot of really good police officers, but there is an organizational culture um, that can be very oppressive. 
And it's not a, a case of a few bad apples. In a lot of cases, it's, it's a question of what is the real organizational culture. And of course, in our, in our genre, you know, one of the problems is America has a real fetish for guns and violence. And, you know, there's some people who know that with a badge and a gun, uh, they're basically above the law. Now, you have to look at the fact that it took the whole world to get a, 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 an accountable outcome for the George uh, Floyd murder. And you have to remember, there's still three police officers who've yet to be properly brought to justice. So we have to see, I mean, again, it took a worldwide movement to get what the video footage obviously showed was a travesty of justice. So do you have hope that in this era there will be some kind of substantive change since the whole world, as you say, was watching? Or do you, what do you think is well, going to happen from here? Well, I think the hope is that for people of goodwill to use this opportunity um, to educate themselves and to recommit themselves. And to be sure, I've been a, an activist since probably 1968. And so I know that there are many people of goodwill who are working for just outcomes and are very encouraged by the consciousness and the dedication of young people. But but again, you have to realize that this is a legacy, again, that we have never honestly grappled with. And because of that, you have this. I mean, right now we're on the precipice of literally losing our democracy. There's no doubt in my mind that if the Republicans take over Congress next year, Democracy as we know it in this country is probably over because there's a longstanding legacy which, you know, in terms of the geopolitics, America has been losing its economic standing in the world. There was a point in time after World War II where America was the preeminent uh, country in the world. Not so much now because of the leadership in the country has for their own self-serving reasons outsource a lot of our industrial capacity and, and offshore their wealth to the detriment of the masses of people. Just think about this statistic. We spent $300 million a day for 20 years in Afghanistan. There are only 329 million people in America. That means that there was enough money to give every adult in America a million dollars a day for 20 years. And yet we're now quibbling about three trillion dollars to deal with the uh, infrastructure that that the uh, COVID pandemic has decimated our economy. Joe Manson has no problem with giving money to any military uh, weapon that that uh, that is uh, put forward, whether it's functional or not. But he has a problem spending money for for children who, who are starving. That's a problem. That is a problem. If we take it back to the local level, to Albany County, are there things that people can do in your mind that would help restore democracy? I think you're right with the, uh, the three propositions that just got voted down in New York State, you know, and all across the country there are these uh, voting laws that are restricting um, participation in the government. Well, one of the things I'll say very quickly is the Democrats over the last 20, 30 years have made a, a very bad mistake 
by only concentrating on the presidential elections, leaving the judiciary and the governorships and the local legislatures to the Republicans. And now we find ourselves behind the eight ball. What people of conscience can do is, number one, teach their children to be critical thinkers, to be open minded. It's a travesty that we stop teaching kids cursive writing in school. It's something very insidious about that. People are legally responsible to sign their names, but we stop teaching kids script. That That's a harbinger of some really, really bad intent. The new math is an absurdity. My theory is that somebody's getting a big kickback. I have had no teacher who thinks this new mathematics makes sense. I was just talking to one of my relatives over the weekend. They teach in Harlem, and they were saying that they can't teach kids that 12 plus 12 is 24, they have to teach that six plus six plus six plus six and draw a picture and that's required. That makes no sense. There have been generations of generations that have been taught math in a, a very logical way. And yet we have this totally illogical labyrinthine process of mathematics that parents can't understand that frustrate the children, and I have yet to have any teacher think it's a good thing, and yet there's a generation of parents who's allowed this to happen. So the best thing any person of conscience can do is teach their children to be critical thinkers, to be open-minded, to be compassionate, and then they have to be civically engaged. In the communities that I represent, um, we have a very low voter turnout. It's because government has not served people and people are struggling for day-to-day -day survival. But people have to understand that as bad as things are, they can get worse. And that we're, that we're in a, a historical turning point of the likes of which we may not survive unless we're really conscious. Well, those are very... So I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about the potential, but I'm very afraid that we're very close to losing democracy and again, we're what one election cycle next year away from having our whole experiment thwarted. So you said that in your district, there's a lack of civic engagement. What what can you do about that? I mean, <laughs> well, here's the thing. I believe that if and when. Um, some of the initiatives on, on the infrastructure, the human infrastructure are implemented, that will give people hope. What happens historically is people don't stand up when they're beaten down. People stand up when they're given a little bit of hope. I mean, just look at the situation in Afghanistan. I don't understand the theory of the case by why we got out of Afghanistan the way we did. Now, grant you, we probably never needed to be in there. If the Russians couldn't deal with Afghanistan just on a military level, and that's not arguing the, the merit of the case for whether you should or shouldn't be in there, but just as a technical uh, capacity issue, if Russia, who has a very formidable army, you just have to go back to World War II and the battle in Stalingrad to know how formidable the Russian uh, military is. As the close physical proximity that Russia had to Afghanistan, and the advanced military technology that Russia had, for them to be thwarted, for Americans to think that we could do something that Russia couldn't, is just the height of hubris. At the end of the day, the pen is still mighty in the sword, and it's a question of hearts and minds. We should have learned that in Vietnam. We should have learned that in Iraq. 
you can't you can't have a foreign power intervene in a civil war and think you're going to have a good outcome. Now, here's the problem with Afghanistan. The Afghan people, on for the majority, uh, or a large portion of which, never really bought into a unitary state, and the level of corruption was, you know, a pandemic. And so you look how quickly the president of Afghanistan left with the old concept that the captain is supposed to go down with the sinking ship. The captain in this case was the first one off the ship, leaving the women and children literally at the mercy of of what's going to be a horatious slaughter. We know what's going to happen to the women in in Afghanistan. We know what that is. We know what ISIS-K is. We know what the Taliban is. Now, here's my problem. We have over three, uh, uh, 30,000 troops in South Korea. We've got people in Germany from World War II. And we've got a large, the probably largest contingent of troops in Japan. Two alternatives were available. We could have kept, put 10,000 troops out of Japan, 10 out of, uh, of Germany, and 10 out of uh, South Korea, put them in Afghanistan as a permanent peacekeeping force to prevent the terrorism, the re-terrorizing by ISIS-K and Taliban, or we could have had a sufficient number of troops in a Mexican standoff to get all of our people out. But to just do a last-minute pullout where there was no necessity to do so, I don't care about what agreement that uh, Donald Trump had with the Taliban. The Taliban doesn't have the military capacity to stand up to America if we take a stand. That's just a simple fact. So the fact that we abandoned those people there is a, is a political strategy that I just don't understand. I'm sorry if the generals disagree with me, but I have enough command of history to know that we have sufficient forces that we could have came in and extracted our people in a safe way. Yes, we would have lost some troops, but that would have been an acceptable loss compared to the slaughter that's going to happen to the people who are translators and who serve with us. So I don't understand a lot of the false steps that we're making. You see what was happening with the Haitians on the border. You've never seen people on horseback attacking immigrants who have a right to have a fair trial in terms of clemency and in terms of fleeing from international conflicts. That image that you saw of people on horseback. Yeah, did that hit a chord with you? Did that hit a chord oh, with you? Well, it's so, it, 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 you've never seen that before. Yeah. Have you ever, have you ever seen footage of, of, of American personnel beating back immigrants fleeing from danger on horseback? I've never seen that before. I don't think it's ever happened before. Again, that's where that racist history comes into play. Well, you do have, as you say, a real command of history. I would just like it if you could kind of walk us through your life. You said where you were born, but what? how did you develop after that? Where did this come from, this well, sense? Well, my, my, my mother is just turned 89 years old, and she's a master teacher. And my father was one of the foremost African art dealers in the world. He also was at the vanguard of the abstract expressionist art movement with Picasso and Romeo Bearden. And he was also a prominent artist and jazz musician. So I've always had a sense of my African ancestry and my blackness. And I was raised in a, a Brooklyn, well, we came to um, 
New York from South Carolina somewhere around 1955. And we, we lived where the Harlem State Office Building used to be. And then we moved to Brooklyn for my uh, from like kindergarten to third grade. We were in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. Then we moved to um, different parts of Brooklyn, um, Park Slope, uh, and then Williamsburg. Then we moved to St. Albans, Queens. And in 1978, I came to Albany. But I've been a long-term social justice activist uh, at least probably since 1968. And what brought you to Albany? I know you were really I came active. For a job. In, what was I, the- I came? I, I, I came to work for civil service as a senior minority group personnel specialist, and my job was to get um, employment in New York State government for blacks and Hispanics who had been traditionally uh, neglected by our civil service. I eventually became the de facto chief diversity officer for New York State, and I actually sued Andrew Cuomo in a $45 million class action because we had uh, a non-job-related discriminatory testing policy. So it took me from September 1997 to when we settled a week before Andrew Cuomo was sworn in as governor on um, December 23rd of 2010. Wow, that was a long fight. It, it was a long but historic and necessary fight. Had I not stopped that test, it would have been used in every state in the country uh, to the detriment because what it did was it tested people for high-level management jobs in a way that actually didn't test in a job-related way. So in other words, people were promoted on the basis of a test that didn't legitimately test their knowledge, skills, and abilities, and also was tremendously discriminatory. Well, congratulations. That's <laughs> that's huge. So um, what brought you to run for the county legislature? Why did you decide to get involved well, kind of at the grassroots level here? Well, I saw that as an opportunity to continue social activism, social justice. And, you know, I have I have a friend that continually tries to encourage me to run for Congress or higher office. And I have to explain to him that literally we can I can do more in the Albany County legislature in real terms than I could in Washington because of the tremendous gridlock. If I were a freshman, you know, congressperson or senator, I would be one of a, a mass that, as you can see, how we're backpedaling on a human infrastructure bill and, and the the. The larger infrastructure, the the traditional infrastructure bill, when there's there's nothing in those bills that's not urgently needed. I mean, we this this pandemic has really wreaked havoc on our economy. Just think about it this way: the city of Albany has less than 100,000 people. We have a large number of hotels in in Albany. If your job is changing beds in a hotel, and you lose that job, where do you go from there? What job opportunities do you have that's below changing beds in a hotel? Not to denigrate that as a way of making a living, but just to realize that in terms of viable employment, there are not many more jobs that require less formal skills than that particular uh, profession, and that all the similarly situated jobs are equally ravaged under COVID. So you said earlier that when people are beaten down, they don't 
civically engaged. They need a sense of hope in order to right. stand up. So, so what, what can you do with the local level? I mean, you're hoping the Biden bill for infrastructure will come through and provide some hope. Well, I but I think it will. Here's the thing. I, locally, I think it will come through. I know I, something will come through. And when you talk, see, I mean, again, what I try to explain to people and people think they have a grasp of numbers. But what you have to understand is that to spend one billion dollars. You would have to spend a thousand dollars an hour for over 114 years. So you have to understand that a trillion dollars is a thousand billions. And so when you're talking about three trillion dollars, I'm actually working on a group now. Uh, who have a really viable strategy of funding a, a national infrastructure bank at the tune of $5 trillion by buying treasury bonds, which means it would have zero impact on the actual budget. It would be no new taxes. It would not be a disproportionate burden on the budget. Uh, and it would deal with some of the necessary things we need for hard infrastructure. I mean, we have, you know, if you look at the uh, recent uh, uh, hurricanes and storms, we've had like in a four-week period, we've had Henri, Ida, and Nicholas. So my, I used to have an art gallery in Manhattan on 28th Street and 6th Avenue. The 28th Street subway was completely underwater just a few weeks ago. That has never happened before. Just a few days ago, parts of Brooklyn were completely flooded. We have a, here's the question. Is it cheaper to stop the fires that are going from Los Angeles to Washington State or to try to rebuild after a, a conflagration? Is it cheaper to stop the damage that comes from flooding and people losing their houses in large numbers? Or is it, is it cheaper to rebuild after that carnage? So in other words, the cost of preventing this escalating climate change carnage is much cheaper than trying to reclimate the damage after it's done. And yet you have these people in Washington. At, I mean, let's take the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling is paying for the change in the tax structure to benefit billionaires and trillionaires who don't need the money. And yet the Republicans are saying that that carnage that went to the richest people in the country in terms of the change in the tax system, which is the debt ceiling is going to pay for, that the Democrats alone should bear that burden. This makes no sense. You have a credit card that's over the limit, but you want your, your, you know, your neighbor to pay for it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it was raised several times during the Trump administration with with no pushback. So, yeah. Well, every day the Trump administration, he was guilty of, of impeachable acts every day. If if, if, if if Barack Obama had did anything that Donald Trump in any day of Trump's administration, he would be probably impeached. Well, we should probably end this talk back where we started, just to think about this very small bill that represents, now that I've talked to you, so much more. Um, the basic human right of people being able to wear their hair as, as they are, rather than having to conform to some white person idea of what 
hair should be. Do you just have any kind of closing thoughts on that? I'm thinking of Amanda Gorman, you know, at Biden's um, inauguration. She read that inspiring poem and her oh, hair yeah, was, her oh, hair Lord, yeah. was, <laughs> was wonderful. a white person's such hair a, could never look like a crown the way hers did but I mean such, you, such an inspirational figure she is what happens is what we have is an artifact of white privilege that's the, the, the result of the rationalization of the enslavement and what you have to understand slavery has been a condition in history but there's a unique element to the enslavement of African-Americans because if you go back to the days of, of, of Rome when you had gladiators, people were not considered not human beings. Slavery was an artifact of war and conflict, but people could buy or win their way uh, back to freedom. In the enslavement, human beings will actually reproduce for economic benefit, and the whole civil war was fought explicitly over slavery. People in the South want to say it was just Southern tradition, but the tradition was the tradition of slavery. And the entire economy depended on it. it the, the primary accumulation of capital came from cotton and the enslavement, and uh, the economic status that we enjoy today was built on an infrastructure that was built by people for free labor for many years. And it wasn't just the South. I just a couple of weeks ago did a podcast. Oh, the North was actively involved. Yeah. Cotton was king and the textile industry in the North was an integral part of, of what happens in the economy.